Good morning, Bokertov. Welcome back to Living with Emuna. As always, I want to thank our very generous series sponsors, Avi and Bella Morgan, in memory of Rabbi Dr. Brian Galbit, and in memory of Bella's mother, Dr. Ellen Shanzer. We're very grateful to them for their generosity. Also, this morning, she is sponsored by Matt Youngworth in commemoration of her dear mother's Yurtzeit, Rivka Bas Lea, who's Neshama Shadavan Aliyah. Thank you so much for your sponsorship. We are finishing up. We are concluding today this chapter. We spent many, many months learning about simcha, learning about happiness and joy, simcha sachayim, joy for life, through the work of Ravitcha Meyer Morgenstern, Bayam Durachecha. And he ends very appropriately. There are no coincidences, nothing is random or chance, but he ends with Inyanatsara Lachurban. How could we spend all this time talking about how our default disposition, how our instinct and intuition has to be for simcha, simcha sachayim, joy and happiness and smiles. What about the churban? Aren't we supposed to be mourning and grieving? Aren't we supposed to feel its absence and loss? Aren't we supposed to be pained by the fact that there is no Beis HaMikdash? There is a sila kashchina, the withdrawal of the divine presence, rather than feeling an intense hashra'as hashchina. So how do we reconcile? Which is it? Should we walk around and people say, what's the matter? What's wrong? I say, didn't you hear? Didn't you hear what? Beis HaMikdash was destroyed. Many, many years ago, when we were children, my brother was working one summer in a laboratory, and uh, he wasn't shaving. It was the three weeks. And somebody there in the uh, lab, a non-Jew, I think it was an Asian person, asked him, you know, I could tell you're not shaving. What's the matter? He said, I'm, in, I'm actually in mourning. I'm so sorry, I didn't hear you. You had a loss? He said, yeah, my people are, are, the Jewish people had a loss. What happened? The temple was destroyed. So I get the newspaper. I read it every day. I follow the news. I didn't see anything. I didn't see anything. I missed it. He said, well, it was, it was 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago? And, and you're mourning and grieving today? And Napoleon is quoted famously as saying when he passed by in his conquest on Tisha B'av, a group of Jews sitting on the floor crying, and he asked what it was about. And he found out they were sitting in mourning and grieving and crying for the destruction of a Beisamekdash. He said, a people who could cry for something from so long ago are destined to see it be rebuilt. A people who could hold on and mourn and grieve and cry for something so long ago are destined to see it be rebuilt. That's the challenge of these three weeks. How do we relate to and feel the loss of something we never knew we never had? It's like saying, you know, on your great-great-grandparents' yurt site, you should be in tears and cry and be broken and fall apart. I'm sad. I'd like to know about them, but I, I didn't know them. I don't know them. It's not like, God forbid, the loss of an immediate family member who you had your whole life and now they're gone. So the base of Mikdash, we never knew. How can we, feel its, how can we feel its absence? But nevertheless, we're meant to, not only these three weeks of the year and nine days in Tisha B'Av itself, please God, we won't observe it. Beis HaMikdash will be rebuilt speedily. But not only these three weeks of the year, we're meant to regularly. Zecher L'Churban, Zecher L'Mikdash. We have all kinds of halachas, all kinds of halachas that we remember, we break a plate at the chasen's tish, we break the glass under the chuppah, we leave a piece of our home unfinished, unplastered, so that every time one enters their home, they see that unplastered, unfinished portion of their otherwise magnificently decorated home, and they say, it's incomplete, and I'm incomplete, because my life is incomplete, because there's no Beis HaMikdash. I don't have that place of miracles to go regain that confidence in Hashem. I don't have that place to be able to go achieve forgiveness and atonement. I don't have that place. So my home is incomplete as a reflection and a reminder that I'm incomplete. And we have all kinds of other reminders all throughout the year. Now's not the time to elaborate, but it's the difference between Zecher L'Churban and Zecher L'Mikdash. Some things we do to remember there's destruction. 
like the unfinished, unplastered part of our home, the three weeks, the nine days, and so on. And then there's Zecher Lamikdash. We commemorate the way it was done there. For example, the fact that we shake a lulav and esrog for a week. Really, only in the Beis HaMikdash it was taken for a week. Outside the Beis HaMikdash it was only taken the first day. But it was established with Yochanan and Zakkai that we too would take the lulav and esrog all week other than Shabbos, to commemorate the way they did it in the Beis HaMikdash, to remember Zecher LaMikdash. And we have many, many other examples. So it's not only this time of the year, it's throughout the entire year. Do we not include in our davening a Semach David? We're longing for the blossoming and the sprouting of the redemption. We want it to be rebuilt in the present, because any generation in which it's not built means had it existed today, it would have been destroyed. We spoke about that on, on Sunday night. We spoke about judging favorably, going from hypercriticism to hyper-compliments. You could still uh, listen to it. And we spoke about Bonei Yerushalayim in the present because we need to be rebuilding Yerushalayim because we're responsible for its destruction. If it existed today, Hashem would look at us and say, uh-uh, I'm taking it down. So we should feel that pain, that absence, that hole in our hearts all the time. So, How can we be happy and joyous when our home, our true home, our eternal home has been destroyed? It's been decimated, it's been leveled, and we are suffering the consequences of it. Absent of Beis HaMikdash and Sila Kashchina, Hashem's withdrawal means that we're living in a place of doubt and uncertainty. Kaddish Baruch the Almighty is hidden. We're living in a time of anti-Semitism, of hatred, of danger, of threats, of skin, cynics and scoffers from the nations. So how could you be besimcha? How could you be besimcha? Your house is burnt to the ground. You're homeless. You're going to be besimcha? You're going to smile and laugh? Someone's going to meet your house and go, amazing, everything's great. I'm besimcha. I go to the Amunashi. I'm besimcha. How's that possible? Isn't it fake? Isn't it disingenuous? How can we really be besimcha when there's such a thing missing? Here's how we understand it, based on a Pasuk. Our joy and our happiness are there, but they're incomplete. They're incomplete. The Simcha, he says, of, of non-Jews who don't suffer from an absence of a Beis HaMikdash, that Simcha is complete. Good steak, good bottle of wine, purchase a new car, a new dress, new jewelry, make a new money, have a new relationship, celebrate a new birth. So that simcha is entirely complete. It's entirely whole. Because there's nothing missing from it. But for us, by definition, definitionally, we are missing. You know, a person who lost a parent, a loved one, and then had a simcha. So it's a, it's a mixed experience. It's a... It's a mixed experience. It's a bittersweet. We use that expression. It's bittersweet. It's sweet to be at the wedding of a child. It's sweet. It's sweet to be at the wedding of a child. It's sweet to be uh, at the birth of a child, the birth of a grandchild. But there's a bittersweetness because you think about who didn't walk down the aisle. You think about who wasn't the sandik. You think about who's not there for you to call and tell the good news to. There's an incompleteness and a bittersweetness to it. And that's the life of a Jew. There's simcha. But our simcha is, by definition, always bittersweet. Hashem, I walk around joyful, and I'm happy, and I'm grateful, and I'm focused on what I have, not what's missing. And we spoke about last week that the uh, Baal Shem Tov, besimcha, the same letters as machshava. It's all about where I place my thoughts and what I choose to think about. 
I am besimcha when I place my machshava, my thoughts on what I have, not what's missing. But in that simcha, there's a bitter sweetness. There's a bitter sweetness. I'm so happy, Hashem. But really, I wish I could be happy with you on Harabayas, in Yerushalayim, in the Beis HaMikdash. I wish I could offer a korban to say thank you. I wish I could offer a korban to say I'm sorry. I wish I could come close to you and witness the daily miracles that happen there. When I feel doubt or distance and I need to know that you're there, I could just come to the Beis HaMikdash and see the 10 daily miracles and have certainty and completeness. Simcha shal mitzvah muteras v'mechuyeves. The joy for a mitzvah, not a frivolous joy, not a fleeting joy, not a superficial joy, but a simcha shal mitzvah. The simcha shal mitzvah and yana simcha b'ashem yizbarach. What is a simcha shal mitzvah? It is a simcha b'ashem yizbarach. It is a simcha b'ashem yizbarach. It is tapping into Hashem. We don't have Him in the building, but we have Him in the mitzvah. We don't have Him by going to the destination or the location, but we can still tap into Him through the mitzvah that we do. So, a person makes a lachaim, a person has a beautiful Shabbos Yantav meal, a person transforms and elevates the physical into the spiritual, and that's the will of Hashem, that too is a mitzvah. So we have 613 mitzvahs, which are mitzvahs proper. 613 that are counted, that are defined, that appear in the Shulchan Arach. So we have to light candles, we have to put on tefillin, we have to observe the holiday, we have to keep kosher. We have 613 rules and regulations. And then we have everything that falls between. Everything that falls between. Where it's what we might call rishos. It doesn't fit into either mitzvah or avera. It's neutral. When I choose what to wear, when I uh, choose what to eat, how I eat. I have to eat what's kosher, I have to make a bracha before and after I eat. But the attitude and the way I eat, my philosophy of eating, countless other examples, are what we call rishos. But they're not really Rishus. Rabbeinu Bachaya, Balatanya, explain that the truth is there's only two categories. Everything I do, I need to stop and ask myself, what does Hashem want? What mindfulness, what attitude am I meant to have right now? What is this experience? Am I living to eat or eating to live? Is the food nourishing only my body or am I eating in a way that this experience is nourishing my soul? And when we bring the mind, right mind set and mindfulness to all that we do, to all that we do, then we take that which seems mundane and we make it holy and we transform it and we elevate it and we find Hashem in it. We find Hashem in it. In fact, maybe we'll learn this next, I don't know yet, but he has in his Sefer a beautiful parak on Achila, the philosophy of eating. You wouldn't necessarily think a Sefer of Chasidus, of Machshava, would have a parak called Achila, eating. I mean, y- you would if you know the Jewish people, but you'd think it'd be recipes and... Uh, you know, recommended restaurants and uh, all kinds of other things like that. But it's not, it's a philosophy of eating. And what's the philosophy of eating? I'll just give you one insight that he has. He says, you know, if we don't eat, what happens to us? We die. We die. You can't live without eating. The Bria, we were created and designed in such a way that the human being needs nourishment. We need to eat in order to live. If you stop eating, you can't live. That means that what's inherent and intrinsic in the morsels of food that we put into our body the life force, the life source. We're actually, when we eat, we are actually making contact with the driver of life, with life force, life energy, with life. And who is the one who sustains? Who is the one who gives life? Hashem. So every time we take a bite and we swallow, we are imbibing Hashem into us. 
we're taking a chefta, a, a physical manifestation, an object of food, and in that object of food are nutrients and nourishment that will sustain us. So we're swallowing a life force, and Hashem is the life force. Now Hashem, of course, is infinite and omnipotent and can't be contained. Hashem is not in the morsel of food. You can't put him in a box. Hashem doesn't come with a label with how much carbs and how much sugar and how much whatever is in it. You can't put Hashem into something physical, but it means, says Ravit Shemayar, that every bite we eat and every act of eating and every experience of sitting down to eat, you say, I am in the process of dying. I need to experience life. Hashem is the sustainer of life through this act of eating. I'm making contact with the divine. It's an amazing and entirely different philosophy of eating. That is very different than shoveling into our trap as much food as we can. Mindlessly and thoughtlessly just eating as much as we can while we gossip or schmooze or watch something or distract ourselves by solving the wordle or whatever. You know, that, it's a very different philosophy. Am I present? Am I centered? Am I mindful? And he writes, that's the purpose of a bracha. I make a bracha. So that I'm saying, this isn't food, this isn't physical, this isn't just carbs and sugars and proteins, this is a life force. I'm about to imbibe what will sustain my life. And I'm gonna ground myself and focus, and I'm about to see Hashem in what I'm eating, because He will extend my life, He's giving me life itself in what I'm about to eat. Shehakol Hamotzi lechem min He brings out a life force from the world. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So you could eat like an animal. We use that in our vernacular. We describe somebody as eating like a pig or eating like an animal. And when all you do is shove it in, then you're eating like an animal. But if you pause and make a bracha and you mindfully say, I'm about to make contact with the divine. I'm about to experience a connection with Hashem. I'm about to imbibe Hashem in me through the gift of the nourishment and the life force that He's given that I could eat. Wow. Now the act of eating is entirely different. So says Ravitch Even within Simcha Stam, a good steak, psh, that's Simcha. Rare, black and blue, a little char on the outside, nice and rare on the inside, maybe some fried onions with it. That's, uh, that's Simcha. That's Simcha. But if it's just eating like an animal, so that's a Simcha Stam. But if I elevate it because I say, you love me, so you've given me a chef who knows how to properly prepare a black and blue steak, which not many do, and it's not easy, but that is the proper way to have a steak, black and blue, char on the outside and really rare. You want the piece of meat still moving a little bit on your plate. <laughs> if the kavana is to open the nefesh besimcha, you want to be geschmack to eat the steak. You're going to make a shahakol on it. That's an unbelievable shahakol. You're going to find Hashem in it. So our simcha, first of all, is bittersweet because of the churban. I put b'machshava, b'simcha is machshava. Where I put my thoughts, I am b'simcha. Machshava is b'simcha. Simcha, l'smoach is l'smoach, refers taught us. L'smoach, when I'm happy, I'm blossoming, I'm flourishing, I'm growing. The sin and the, tzad, and the tzadi are interchangeable. L'smoach, l'smoach, I'm growing, I'm blossoming. Machshava, besimcha, same letters. I'm focused on the bracha, I'm focused on what I have, not what's missing. I'm focused on what I'm grateful for, not what I want to complain about. I'm focused on the bracha in my life, 
not the challenges. Machshava, where I put my thoughts and my focus and my mindfulness and my meditation, that machshava yields, it makes me besimcha. But my simcha is bittersweet. Because as happy as I am, you walk your child down the aisle, you're on cloud nine. But if a parent or someone you love is not there, is missing, you could be on cloud nine, laced with a little bitterness too. And the churban is that laced with bitterness. Hagdara sa'avela si ga'agua. So how do we understand? We'll go back actually and read the bracket. How do we understand mourning and grieving? If there's such a mitzvah to be besimcha tamid, if we're meant to be besimcha all the time and always, how do you tell that to a mourner? Someone loses a loved one, they're sitting on a low chair, they're wearing their torn shirt, they're not getting a haircut or shaving, and they should be besimcha. So he says, Avelis is not atzvos. Avelis is not synonymous with sadness. Sadness is forbidden. A Jew can't be, it can't have atzvos. No sadness. And if you live knowing that everything is from him and everything is for the best and everything is right and just and our loved one is in a better place for them, experiencing the ultimate ecstasy of being in the presence of the divine, so what room is there for sadness? And all that Hashem does is for the good. How could there be an obligation to mourn, to grieve, to cry? Isn't when you sit and you cry and you mourn, you grieve and you say, why and how and where are you? Isn't that the opposite of emuna, of faith? Isn't faith saying, I accept and it's from you and it's for the best? Isn't it a stira mineyubay? Isn't it a contradiction? El hagdaras avelasi ga'agua. So Avelis, and here Ravit Shemire gives a philosophy of mourning, which is not easy. I'm not suggesting it's easy. But the Avel, the Avel should not have an existential crisis or a crisis in faith through their loss. And the Avel should not be sad in the sense that I'm sad. My team lost in, in sports. I'm sad I, I tore my favorite outfit. I'm sad that it's not a sadness. It's what he calls ga'agua. What's ga'agua? Is longing. It's longing. It's longing. I long for my loved one. I want to hold their hand. I want to feel their embrace. I want to tell them what's happening in my life. I want to be able to pick up the telephone and call them. I have a ga'agua, their absence. I feel that absence and it's creating a sense of longing in me. Not sadness, but longing. What's it like? Mashal. Lahore mashal you send your child to go learn in a faraway land. You know that's what's good, that's what's right, that's what's best for them. And you send them with your full heart. You send them willingly. But you know what happens? You miss them. So at the airport you cry, and they cry. And then a week goes by and you're crying. They're not crying anymore, no, but they're still crying. Now I'm not talking about today. When my children were teenagers living at home, they had no interest and didn't talk to me. Then they went to Israel 6,000 miles away and tried to FaceTime me 400 times a day. I spoke to them by far much more when they were away than when they were home. So today it's a very different experience. When I went to Karen Biavna just a few years ago, there, was, there were pay phones, three of them in KBY, and you waited desperately in line, and you called collect with a little signal to not accept and to call back. Mm -hmm. And when you called back, you had exactly two minutes to say everything going on in your life, because it was $400 a minute. And I spoke to my parents, this is not an exaggeration because of the cost of long distance call, I spoke to them every other week for five minutes. Every other week for five minutes. You believe that? <laughs> Children today don't believe that. 
How much did we talk? Now you're back living with us and we don't talk anymore. <laughs> you should go back to Israel. Mir Tashem. You're going back to Israel. Mir Tashem, when you go back to Israel, we'll talk again many times a day. Baruch Hashem for FaceTime. So every other week for five minutes. So let me ask you, did I want to be there? I wanted to be there. Were my parents excited and happy and proud that I was there? Absolutely. Did it create gaguim? Did they long, did they miss me? My mother did at least. I'm just joking. My father did too, I hope. But my parents missed me and I missed them. You could be in the right place and in the best place and long and miss one another. The longing and missing doesn't create sadness. If you said to my parents, Ephraim's in Karen he's away for the year for two years. Are you sad? I'm not sad. I miss him. I miss him and I long to connect with him. That doesn't have to equal sadness. You could miss someone and long to be connected to them and that doesn't have to equal and equate to sadness. If you are a loving person, an affectionate person, a connected person, a feeling person, then when there's an absence of someone that you love, it creates ga'aguim. There's longing. There's longing. And there's, and there's absence. There's missing. This is an expression of the genuine depth of the soul yearning to see and to connect physically, practically, meaningfully, with the one that you love, with the one that you love. In other words, when you talk to somebody who's a, an avel, who mourns and grieves, they say to themselves, you know, um, I feel the presence of that person all the time. I, I don't necessarily even miss them spiritually because I feel their presence all the time. This year is dedicated in memory of, of Brian Galbit who a couple weeks ago would have turned 50, whose Yeritzite is coming up on Erev Tisha B'av, and I feel his presence every day. He was a dear, dear friend and an incredible source of inspiration. And often I say, what would he do? What would he say? I remember some encouragement or, or the role model he was. You could, f you could spiritually continue to feel the influence and presence, but you still miss laughing or hugging or dancing with or learning together or playing ball together or making lachayim together, that physical connection. And if it's a loved one, you miss holding their hand. You miss the embrace. You miss picking up that phone. You miss that text. You miss that text. So what we have is bipoel, the physical realization of the connection, the spiritual connection no one can take away. When you see those pictures and when you live the memories and when you invoke the sayings and you feel the influence and you look at the family, nobody could take that away. That is eternal. That is immortal. That is uh, something that cannot be taken away. But Bepoel, the physical connection, that's what we don't have. Now that doesn't have to yield sadness. You could express it, not it's sad, but I miss and I long. When you mourn for someone, you're giving them covered. It's called covered ames. You're honoring the deceased. How are you honoring them? When you sponsor the new building on the campus of BRS and you put their name outside, that's honoring them. And by the way, feel free to speak to me after this year if you'd like to do that. That's honoring when you put someone's name on something. But it's covered on mace because you sat shiva. It's covered on mace because you said Kaddish. It's covered on mace because you lit a Yeritzite candle on the Yeritzite. You said Yisker. It's covered on mace because that's covered on mace. The answer is that's covered. You know why? Because when you say you didn't just disappear and you're not invisible and you didn't I miss you. I have gagu. I long for you. I miss you and I long for you and I feel that absence and that hole in my heart that's covered. That's honoring. You're not invisible. You didn't disappear. 
without a trace. So if you see mourning not as sadness, but as longing and missing, then it's no longer a contradiction to emuna, to faith. Because the tears are not for the death. Because a person who stops and says to himself, particularly if one's loved one was suffering or struggling at the end of life, as many or most do physically, mentally, then you're not crying really for them. Because when you pause and you think about it, you say, they are in the world of eternity. They are in the world of bliss. They are in a world where they're no longer suffering or compromised. They are in a world where there is no struggle. They are in a world where they are flying and thriving and flourishing. They are in a world where they are experiencing the ultimate pleasure and bliss of the presence of Hashem. And they are still looking down and they're still connected to all of us. We don't cry and mourn and grieve for them. Really, all those feelings are for us. For them, good, I'm happy, it's good for them. Like a parent whose child is off in Israel, in yeshiva and seminary. I'm happy for them. They're in the best place for them. They're having a phenomenal experience for them. But I'm sad. But I miss them. I'm not sad. I'm not supposed to be sad. But I miss them. But I miss them and I long for them. And so I'm crying for missing them. I'm not crying. You know when we cry? When they're on all kinds of machines and connected to all kinds of tubes. We cry when they're in pain and all kinds of pain medications. We cry when they struggle or suffer in this world. That's when we cry for them. But when they transition to the next world, we're not crying for them. At that point, the tears are for us, for us. I long, I feel an absence, I desire a connection. So that's not a contradiction to faith. My faith, my faith empowers me to know that they're where they're meant to be. They're in a place that's best for them. My tears are for me. My tears are for me. And with this we can understand how to properly grieve and mourn the absence of the Beis HaMikdash. We're not crying because the bricks and mortar were burnt to the ground. We're not crying because the Mizbeach was disassembled and the Parochas was pierced by Titus HaRasha. We're not crying for the physical material. Rather, let's die. You know why we're crying? Because that was a place of divine revelation. That was a place of miracles. That was a place of certainty. And now that's missing. We long for it. We feel its absence. We yearn for the physical connection. And you know why we're crying? Because when a parent has expelled the child from the home and says, I have to practice tough love. It's not that I don't love you. It's the hardest thing in the world for parents. I've been countless times with parents through that process. But when a parent has to practice tough love and says, the reason I'm throwing you out of the house and the reason that I'm withdrawing any help and support is not because I don't love you. It's because I love you so much that this is the only thing I can do to shake you out of your circumstance. Tough love. There's nothing harder in the world for a parent than tough love. But yet the loving parent, when the circumstance demands, will practice that tough love. Kodesh Baruch was practicing tough love with us. Tough love with us. He threw us out of the house. And he said, I love you so much that I need to wake you up and shake you up. I need to do an intervention to get you to change your ways. That I've thrown you out of the house. In fact, I burned the house to the ground. There is no house for us right now. We can't live together right now. You're on your own because of that tough love. And so our tears in this period is not because of sadness. It's missing and longing to be together with him. It's the reality of that tough love, that we are the recipients of it. 
not with doubt that he's doing it out of love, but with the reality that he needs to do tough love. So the core Bechia is for the distance now. So these three weeks, these nine days, every day on our calendar, when we observe Zechel Churban and Zechel Mikdash, we are longing to be reconnected with Him. We're longing to that time and that place where we can go with certainty and confidence, where we can see miracles and revelation, where we could pour out our hearts and receive a kapara atonement. So by the way, we have a Kaddish club that meets once a month. Those who are in the year of mourning, we learn and we have a sort of support group together. And we often talk about that when you pass that picture or you have that trigger that reminds you of the loved one who's not here and you cry, there's even a little simcha in that. Why? Because you say, you know, as much as that just tore open the wound again, it ripped off the scab, but it's a relief and it's a point even of joy to know that I, they were so important to me, I still miss them enough to cry. That that relationship is still so alive that it hasn't dissolved or disappeared, it hasn't lost its intensity. I still love them so much that when I see that thing that it makes me pause or cry, on the one hand, I'm, I'm crying, but on the other, it's also nice to know that the relationship is still so alive that it brings me to that tear. So that's the same thing in these three weeks and nine days. We used to be much closer, and now we're apart, and we yearn and, and long to be close again. So the simcha that's forbidden during these three weeks and nine days is the personal simcha, the selfish simcha. The simcha of the music's on, and so I've got to skip in my step. Turn off the music. The simcha of I got a perfect black and blue steak. So the nine days, tone down that simcha. That's not the simcha right now. The simcha in knowing that I'm sad that I'm not connected to him, that's an appropriate simcha still. The simcha of the external superficial simcha, that's inappropriate. You know the Hasidim, the Rebbe say, many, many say, Mishanech Av, Rosh Chodesh Av is coming up. When the month of Av enters, we lower our level of simcha. I've told you many times, I've Schwab said, simcha is like a pilot light. Sometimes you raise it, it's cooking, fires, it's fire. Sometimes you gotta let it, you have to lower it and let it simmer. But it can't ever be extinguished. So simcha in our life can never be extinguished. In Adar, psh, all cylinders, we raise that flame. The rest of the time, it's at a good steady level. Av, we lower it a bit, but you always have to have simcha. So the Hasidim say, it's not when the nine days start, no laundry and no swimming and no meat. And No, no. It's when Av comes, we have to do less. But how? How? Even when we're memait, the way we are memait is besimcha. You can never forfeit you can never shut off that simcha. A year, a Jew always has to be, always has to be besimcha. Not sad. You could be besimcha even within longing and missing and yearning. So this is the time of year that we focus on the yearning and the longing and the missing. And how do we do it? Even that we do with a sense of, with a sense of simcha. Tonight's behind the bima. You do not want to miss. 
Chava Willig Levy is an amazing, amazing woman, motivational speaker, advocate, author. She was diagnosed with two forms of polio as a child and she's confined to a wheelchair. Her husband is blind. They have children and beautiful grandchildren. And she's an incredibly inspiring person. You do not want to miss the conversation Yechavad and I will have with her tonight behind the Bima. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy.